Welcome. Welcome to the AV Forums Podcast Extra. Hi, this is Steve Withers and welcome to November's Podcast Extra. This month I'm joined by Chris McAnini and we'll be interviewing Ian McCulloch, star of the classic 1970s horror film Zombie Flesh Eaters, and we'll also be talking to James White, who is responsible for the restoration of Zombie Flesh Eaters and its brand new Blu-ray release. The AV Forums Podcast Extra. Extra. So on the line we have Ian McCulloch, who's the star of Zombie Flesh Eaters. So, so, Ian, obviously you're quite well known on UK TV for things like Take the High Road and the apocalyptic drama Survivors. But obviously the reason that we're here to talk about it uh, is Zombie Flesh Eaters, which has just had a, a new release, a complete restoration and release on Blu-ray. So I, first, my, I guess my first question is, uh, have you seen the, the, new, the new restoration of Zombie Flesh Eaters? And if so, what did you think of it? So the Blu-ray version came out in America last year. Uh, I, I went over, I did three sort of conventions to sort of pre-publicize it. And I, I saw it in Seattle for the first time, and I thought that it it looked fantastic and it sounded fantastic, and it was just in the far superior. I mean, I thought even to the original that that I you know, saw, you know, through a glass window. But I just thought it was a huge improvement all round, and that was the, that was the impression I think of absolutely everyone that I sort of talked to over there and over here since. Okay, and I guess uh, obviously you've done a lot of stuff over the years, but probably one of the most famous things is Zombie Flesh Eaters uh, for, for various reasons. One, is, I, th- I think it's a great film, but also, of course, it's quite notorious from the early 80s um, when the, the video nasty scandal was going on. Um, how, how did you actually become involved with um, Zombie Flesh Eaters in the first place? Uh, well, you sort of listed you said the things I'd done. You mentioned Take the High Road. That was, sort of, that was the first drama actually STV ever did, although they tend to forget it now. But then there was a long, long gap of doing bits and pieces before Survivors came up. And Survivors, it was a BBC series, ran for three seasons. Uh, and it was, it was a huge hit all over the world. But it was, it was a particular hit in Italy, where it was called Sopra Vesuti. Um, um, and and, and such, a, such a hit that when I went out to do my first film, I was mobbed. I mean, I'd never been mobbed anywhere in my life, but I was mobbed twice in Italy when I went out there. Then when the second series was being shown, I was totally ignored. So that that, that really <laughs> signified something. But Survivors, as I say, was, was a huge hit, and it was a result of the success of that in Italy um, that I was asked by the casting director and by Lucio Fulci if, if I'd like to be in Zombie Flesh Eaters. But it came totally out of the blue, and it was entirely due to the Survivors. Yeah, um, it's got to be a crazy transition to go from British television and uh, the odd movie that you'd made as well. You'd done The Ghoul, and you were, didn't you appear in Where Eagles Dare as well? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it is. The, the, you said you use the word crazy. I mean, they, they just work. Uh, the, way the, the Italian work ethic is just nothing like the work ethic here in the UK. I mean, they... They work from the crack of dawn till you know dark. They they don't get paid very much money. They don't have breaks, you know, for cups of coffee, sandwiches, bacon rolls, whatever. <laughs> they just you know get on with it. I don't know whether they have sort of trade unions or whatever. But when I was doing these films, say 30 years ago, they just worked like nobody's business, um, non-stop, full of energy, full of enthusiasm. Every single person for every single job they did. And it was a huge sort of surprise going from doing, I think the last British movie I'd made was The Ghoul. Well, I thought it was a slow film, but it was done in such a sort of slow fashion. And, and, and the bigger films like Where Eagles There or Cromwell, you know, they're, they're shooting sort of seconds or 
in just a few seconds filming a day, whereas you know, the Italians just just get on with it. You know, they want the thing finished, they want it done well, and um, you know, that's their business, and they do it. So it, it was a, a, a pleasant surprise because there was no time to sort of sit back and reflect on whether you were doing something right or doing something wrong. I mean, you were straight on to the next bit. See, the, the thing about Flash Eaters is that obviously the script that first came out didn't really deal with zombies at all. It was kind of like a, a supernatural gothic sort of tale um, of mystery on this island. And then, of course, with the success of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, obviously the Italians being what they are, they chose to leap on the bandwagon and bring in the, the flesh-munching zombies. Were you aware of George Romero's movie beforehand and did you kind of think that maybe this was a cash-in? Uh, no, I was I was totally unaware of, uh, of Romero's first film or any of the subsequent ones. Um, I haven't seen that one or any of them. Um, I, as far as I knew, this was a sort of one-off. Um, uh, although uh, they were calling initially, it was called Zombie Do It, Zombie Two. So obviously, it was cashing in on something. Um, but I think it was a sort of totally different film. And uh, what what you just said, I mean. The surprising thing is that you know, the people who like the film obviously know far more about it than I do. And you know, when I go to the conventions and the show, you know, people join in and they know the script backwards. They, I mean, I'm amazed. Um, and it's the same with this. I mean, I I did not know, which you just said, that there was a, an earlier version, a sort of more gothic type uh, version of this film. I mean, I. I was just told it was about zombies, where the locations were, um, what the sort of time was, what the money was, and you know, would I like, would I just please say yes? And I mean, I was only too happy to say yes, but um, I mean, I wasn't aware of any of that. It comes up in lots of conversations, um, you know, people ask questions, but the, but the, it, it just goes back to the fact that um, I think it obviously wasn't cashing in on the success of the Romero film. But I don't, and I know I haven't seen it, but I don't think it is really anything like it. It is done in fact in, in, in an Italian way. Uh, um, no, th there's no similarity between the films at all, apart from yeah. having people getting eaten by, you know, the living dead. Yeah, I was at a convention, Richard Johnson and I were, and we, uh, Romero was there as well, so we thought we ought to pop down and see him and just uh, pay our respects. But he, um, he, <laughs> he didn't seem terribly interested in zombie flesh eaters or zombie, whatever they call it. Um, I don't think he, he, I think he said he hadn't, he hadn't seen it. We had we had a photograph taken with him, and, and that was that. I think we sort of exited with our tails between our legs, actually, <laughs> rather. No, that should not have been the case. I mean, you know, he's he's his own man. He makes his own films, and you know, he's he's brilliant at it. I mean, it would be nice to be in one of them and do a little crossover. But uh, um, no, they're, they're, you know, they're just sort of totally different, and they they seem to have a sort of totally different sort of fan base. I think really as well. It's it's a very rabid sort of a fan base for flesh eaters. I mean, I, I know people who've got tattoos of your good self on their yeah, back, yeah, um, with the pistol raised. That's another question I was going to ask you. Um, the firearms training did did wacky little Lucio Fulci give you any sort of firearms training at all to handle no, the weaponry? I mean, in, in lots of stuff you've, you you once done before, you know, you're firing guns and professionals. I mean, the episode I did of that. I mean, you, you're always sort of firing guns or you know waving swords around or riding horses. You just sort of take it as part of your sort of acting sort of background that you do all these things and try to make them look convincing. But, I mean, in fact, I'd been in the Army, so, you know, I'd fired everything from artillery rounds to tank shells to rifles, pistols to throwing grenades and all the rest of it. So, I mean, and again, you, you accentuate everything you do. So you, you're not doing it the way you would do it, you know, in a, in a professional way. You're doing it in a way which has an effect for a camera. You know, I'd, I'd done all this stuff in the army, so and, and it was, it, it's all sort of second second nature to one sort of firing these things. 
because the, there is one glorious moment where the zombified um, Richard Johnson's assistant, Lucas, comes back as a zombie, and you turn the pistol on him at close range, and you miss on two occasions first. And it's the, the look of, sh of sheer intent on your face to hit him with the third shot is just, it's just tremendous. I fired guns myself and, and missed incredibly, and then had that same sort of furious intent to get it right, and I think you nailed that superbly. I am not a very good shot, I have to say. I wasn't. A, I was, I was uh, sort of uh, thought pretty poorly of when I was out because, as I say, I was a, <laughs> a second lieutenant in charge of a platoon, and my commanding officer thought that all officers should be marksmen, i.e., sort of first-class sort of shots. And I sadly wasn't, and uh, that that has actually continued. And uh, when I came up to live here, I mean, I've uh, thought that I might be sort of sh you know, shooting pheasants and grass and things, and. Uh, I've given that up because I'm just embarrassed at how bad I am. So <laughs> I'm I'm happy that even after three shots, I managed to hit something in the film. Uh, and the rest of the violence as well. I mean, that must have been a, a bit of a, a shock to your system. I mean, obviously on the set, you're dealing with Gino De Rossi's makeup effects and these zombie extras, but you hadn't really seen how it was all going to come together. But you must have been aware of just how nasty this thing was was. Was meant uh, to be no, looking. I'm, I'm going to be totally honest. I had no idea it was going to be as gory as it was. Uh, wow. There was going to be so much splatter, so much flesh. Um, uh, it, it came as a, a total surprise. And I say, when I saw it through the when I was doing the the, the, the voiceover for the 25th thing with Jason Slater, and I saw it through the window. I mean, I I recoiled at sort of some of the stuff as it sort of sort of came up on the screen. It was it was totally unexpected because you know you you do your bit. Uh, and you're doing it to, you know, not necessarily that the person is going to have his head smashed in, but you do your little bit of acting, and then you, you know, disappear. And then the special effects, Janetta De Rossi and whatever, take over. And you know, I've always said, as far as I'm concerned, the star of the film is the effects man, and it's it's uh, De Rossi's film, I think, De Rossi and Fulci rather than anyone else. Ian, um, about the, the little um, Italian gore master. Fulci himself. We hear a lot of stories about how volatile and irascible he could be on set. Did you encounter any such tantrums and uh, troubles? Uh, well, I, I, I sometimes feel a little bit sort of guilty about it because I have said in interviews that I thought he was a bully, and he certainly sort of bullied the young girl. In it. I mean, you know, she wasn't an actress, and I think he may have thought that the only way he could get a decent performance out of her was, was to bully her. But he, but he, he did bully her. And I mean, lots of directors do this. They pick on an actor or an actress, usually someone who's fairly insignificant and weak, and then just sort of, you know, have a go at them, just as a way of sort of letting off steam. But I thought he was, he was very, very hard on her. I mean, I, I, you know, had, had to rescue her from. I mean, she, she, I'm sure she was drowning. I mean, she was seen in the water. She had a sort of tank on her back, and she wasn't a swimmer. And there she was in the middle of the sort of Caribbean, off the boat, crying out in Italian, "Help! Help! Help!" So you know, I, I dived in. Well, you know, the camera was still turning, as if it was still a part of the film. But uh, Richard tells Richard Johnson tells a story that when he. Um, saw Fulci sort of eating, well, I think it's in the commentary, eating the earth, sort of pulling out bits of earth and you know, stuffing them in his mouth and spitting them out and, and saying that uh, you know, if, he, if, he, if he didn't eat the earth, he was, he was so incensed with this girl that he'd eat her. 
and again, I keep on saying, I mean, I, I, I find it impossible to, to take him seriously. A, because he, he sort of talked in sort of fractured English. Uh, I mean, we always understood each other, but his, his English wasn't absolutely brilliant. And also, and, and this is the truth, I mean, he did look like Benny Hill to me. And speaking in fractured English and looks like Benny Hill, they're quite difficult to take seriously. Did you have any, any input at all in, like, in the character? Did you have a chance to add dialogue, remove dialogue, or say, you know, Peter West would not like this? Um, no, I think I was... Uh, I, I may have changed odd little bits. I mean, I'm like Richard. I mean, Richard's a master at uh, changing dialogue and, and improvising and adding his own. Um, I mean, I, I, unless it was excruciatingly bad. I mean, it, this film wasn't as bad as the, the, dialogue-wise as the two films that followed. Um, and I think that because I was a sort of novice and uh, and it was my first big film like this, I, I actually more or less towed the line and you know, said the words that were given to me. And and I said the, the difficulty was, and you know, hopefully one gets away with it, you just sort of say them as convincingly as possible. Certainly, I, I think you do. You have Everyone seems to quote Richard Johnson's line about uh, the boat can leave now, tell, tell the, the crew. crew. Tell the but crew. I think you've got a great line in there as well. When you first get into the church, the, church, the hospital, to barricade yourselves in and to Richard Johnson you turn around and say out there they're coming back to life they're everywhere and I think that's you know that, that's an even more classic line because the look on your face is sheer, is sheer you know, palpable terror it's, it's, it's brilliantly done yeah, you, you're sure it's not over the top <laughs> in a film that is that starts off massively over the top and then just gets higher and higher no <laughs> <laughs> laughing it up. I think when I, I saw the film at uh, the, the the Dead by Dawn in Edinburgh Festival, and I the laughter in, in while the film was being shown was, was just amazing. I mean, at lines like that. I mean, and others and different things and rounds of applause and cheering while the film. I mean, I I it, it took my breath away. I mean, I just did wonder whether I was watching the same film. But I say that was part, you know, it wasn't people, you know, laughing, you know, at it in a nasty way. It was, it was the the pleasure and the enjoyment of of each scene, and I say the the odd little bits of peculiar dialogue and overacting. I mean, you were working with cast members who couldn't speak English. Yeah. So how, how was how was that in effect? Mind you, the ones you were speaking to mainly, you had Al, Cl- Al Cliver there, didn't you? Now, he could yeah. speak English, um, couldn't they, he? They all spoke English. I think Jennifer the Olga Carlotos is, uh, I mean, after a fashion. And I, I think the Italians' view is that this film, I mean, it was already in profit before they started filming it. It's going to be shown all over the world. It's going to be dubbed into so many languages. So, you know, what you're saying doesn't really matter very much because if, if, you if you're not saying it well, another actor's going to say it and make it sound you know, professional and convincing. So I, th- I think they just say, you know, get on with it, say the lines, and as long as we've, we've covered it, we know we can, when it comes to the sort of dubbing, editing, we can make it sound probably much, much better than it sounded in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, I did mine in English. I think well, she may have done hers in Greek, and the others did some of theirs in Italian. But, I mean, as you know, there, there are stories that Antonio only sort of just told people to count, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, because he knew that he could dub all those sort of lip movements into, you know, meaning like you know, something out of Hamlet. But it's part of the beauty of these movies, you know, the fact that you know, even kids who come to it, I say kids, but people who come to these movies now, 
you know, I grew up with these. I was 11 when I first saw Zombie Fight. So I, I feel like I've grown up with you because I've watched that film so many times. Yeah, yeah, you know, probably, ever ruined, since. probably ruined your life if you saw um, it. Oh, that's there a valid point, actually. There are, there are people <laughs> that say that that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I never got the tattoo of you. And I haven't done that as yet. But, you know, that could be the next step. I don't know. Well, I have. Uh, I mean, not in, not in the UK, but in America. I mean, I have these tattoos are... You know, they are fairly frequent sort of turning up at sort of the conventions. I mean, on on back and front, legs, arms, and it's and it's a little uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a surprise. And the the real surprise is the the fact that this film isn't remembered fondly in the country of its birth, which is Italy. Is that true? Yeah, it hasn't got the recognition. No, I mean, I just say you know, do people have conventions in Italy about these things and. Uh, I think there's there's one sort of half-hearted convention, but other than that, I mean, you know, they they couldn't care less. Whereas America, Scandinavia, Germany. Would you not get mobbed in Italy this time if you went oh, back no, there? No, 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 no. I I wouldn't get mobbed anywhere. Would you ever like at home? Would you sit down and watch one of these movies? No, I mean, I've I've I I have got a copy of Zombie Holocaust, which I, I mean, it's on my desk as I'm talking to you. Somewhere. I mean, I haven't haven't opened the packet. I've never seen it. Sorry, I was going to say, Ian, how did you feel when, when the media storm erupted in the early 80s regarding the video nasties? Um, how did you feel about being sort of the star of one of the films that was classified as, at the time, a video nasty? Well, it, uh, I don't think it really worried me. I mean, it's it, because I thought it was such a sort of silly, inconsequential film, which it was, obviously, in those days. I mean, it, it didn't have a cult following. It wasn't an iconic thing. It hadn't made millions of dollars. It, it, it had been you know, largely ignored, uh, I thought. So when that came out, it gave it an awful lot of publicity, which, I mean, didn't really affect me, um, because as I've said, I didn't, I didn't get a single job as a result of any of these Italian films. Um, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's a story I've repeated, but my, my wife's uncle sat on the committee that banned them, um, and, uh, which, I, I mean, I, I just thought was sort of funny, because they, they were obviously were three films which he would find absolutely horrid, and, and weren't his sort of cup of tea because he was in his sixties and he would you know you just expect him to sort of say ban them but you know without the ban you know the the films would have just disappeared i mean like so many others before and since um and it was was the ban and the video nasty bit um all over the world you know whether it was here or in japan that sort of made the film um so whether um at the time, I just thought it was a bit of a joke, quite honestly, because I think at the time I was more interested in sort of doing sort of serious theatre work rather than, you know, being in movies. I mean, I never, I've ne- I never ever thought, you know, way back to when I started, I just thought I was going to be a classical stage actor and I wasn't going to be doing you know, television work or films. It never crossed my mind. So when, when they turned up, I was sort of happy to do them, but I never thought that they were going to be my sort of bread and butter or butter and jam or tea and scones, depending on which level you're in the films at. Um, so, I mean, I say it was, it, was just a, it was just a joke, a little sort of funny thing that happened on the side. And, and I, again, I thought that would be the end of it. They were going to be banned. No one was going to see them. And um, they, you know, if, you could, if you can disappear even more, it would disappear even more. But uh, as we all know, it had the opposite effect. And, you know, they were being sold under the counter. And I, my, I said to someone else at an interview, that I, at the conventions I met two people who were taken to court for selling them when they were banned, uh, one of whom was fined, and the other one, um, so he said, the judge asked to see the film. 
watched the film and then decided not to find him because he didn't think that it was as bad as the you know, Metropolitan Police or whatever had said it was. That, that had sort of, you know, no impact rather than just really being rather amusing and, you know, something to sort of talk about when you went out for supper or having a drink with someone. It's interesting uh, how times have changed, isn't it? Because if you think back 30 years ago, they were trying to ban the film, and now we have this lovely, uh, you know, completely restored, totally uncut um, you know, 1080p Blu-ray of the movie uh, with documentaries and commentary tracks and everything else. Uh, you know, it shows you how times have changed. But even now, I mean, I watched it again last week in preparation for this interview, and um, the film is still very powerful. It's so well made that there are scenes, particularly, I think, frankly, the eye-gouging scene with the yeah. splinter, that still shock to this day, even though we've become much more permissive in our society, because it was so well done. Well, it, it, it is well done, and, I mean, and those significant scenes stay significant. But um, last week, uh, I showed it uh, in aid of my local sort of golf club, um, and I showed it in a little local sort of community centre. And most of the audience were in their 60s, and they were the golfers and their wives of a sort of similar age watching. And I thought that they were you know, going to be leading in their droves. And in fact, they sat through it, apparently loved it and the only person who left was one of the male golfers who had to go to the loo i mean that got the biggest laugh of the whole evening this one gent had to get up and sort of leave the sort of cinema but you know these these were people who were seemingly not in the slightest bit shocked by it not in the slightest bit put off and they say i expected them to leave one by one as it started like my wife had done 30 years before and they just didn't they sat through it enjoyed it and then I say we we stayed and had a Q and A afterwards, which lasted for about sort of two hours. So, as I say, time think times have changed, and um, and you know they they just sort of sat through it almost as if they were watching a golf match. I think. I must admit, Ian, that that that, that would be a present uh, a screening. I definitely would have liked to have seen a whole uh, golf club full of people. I mean, it, it was fun and. Uh, and I sort of tried to forewarn them, you know, because no one under 18 was allowed to come. And I tried to forewarn them that it wasn't going to be their cup of tea. But they, I mean, they were, I mean, especially the, the wives, I thought they were fantastic to sort of sit yeah. and just be so unfazed. Um, were you present when they shot the shark versus uh, no, zombie no, that, sequence? No, that was done by another unit in, entirely. Okay, because um, I, I was always curious whether that shark, you know, um, I think Chris has mentioned it to me. Did it have any teeth? Uh, and was it obviously doped up to the well, eyeballs? Or... You know, when you, I mean, it's, it, it is one of the you know, so-called iconic scenes, but in fact, you know, there, there they are fighting. Around. There isn't a mark on either of them. I mean, you say it had no teeth. Um, obviously, the zombie didn't have any teeth either because they're <laughs> supposedly biting. I mean, obviously, the shark's too valuable to sort of put, you know, even if you could put makeup on it and to sort of put any any marks on or take any bits out of it. But I, it was a tiger shark, wasn't it? Something that sort it's of, a tiger shark, yeah. It, it's one of the scenes which I, I, I don't find it a very, very impressive scene. I mean, impressive in the way they've managed to do it, but it, with regard to being, you know, horrific or makes you sort of gasp for breath or the wonder of it all, I'm, I... I you think it's absurd? It is, yes, absurd. But it, I, know, I think it's, that's I think that's why it's so popular. Though. Yeah, it's so people, bizarre. People, you know, that's that's what they remember, and um, and again, they re, they remember it with fondness. They don't they're not laughing at it. They don't think it's absurd. They just they think it's fun. Ian, what's your favourite scene in the film? Oh, cool. Don't ever ask me that. Um, in a silly way, and it is a silly way, is the is the first scene in the newspaper office. 
um, which, again, I've said somewhere, we filmed in a proper newspaper office in New York without, with the permission of the janitor, no one else. I mean, the whole Italian crew just crashed in, <laughs> set it up, took over desks, changed things, put things up on the walls, um, and just went on filming. I mean, the, the stuff they did is, is just you know, unbelievable. Um, and, and until someone came in, and I've always thought was... Um, um, who's the newspaper? Murdoch. Yeah, I, I thought because he was certainly an Australian, and just saying, you know, what the that's going on here? You know, <laughs> off, get out, get out, get out. And so they left, you know, just as quickly as they went in, they all exited. But I just, I sort of quite like that scene, only because I, I'd read somewhere that uh, you know, it's it's a good thing to be doing things with your hands or your head or your eyes as you sort of wander around. So I just, I think, I wandered into the scene. I think I've got a pencil which I'm flicking in my mouth, yeah. and I'm sort of. Saying hello to people left, right, and I mean, it's it's, it's it's looking back at it, it's it's not the sort of acting that I actually admire. So it was the first time I had a go at it, and I I don't think I've ever I've ever done it. <laughs> but it it was fun to do, and it's it's reasonably effective. But it's uh, it's uh, cheesy film acting, I think. People will go into a room and then you see that their eyes are examining the walls and the doors and the windows, and you know people don't do that in real life. But you are acting opposite your director as well. He, his famous cameo was in that. Yeah, that he, came, he, he did that little scene. I mean, the, only, the only thing I said when I did change the dialogue, because the, the character was supposed originally to be American, and I said I, I wasn't happy doing an American accent, so I just said, all right, we'll make him a Brit. And in that scene that you're talking about, he says, you know, although your uncle or whatever owns the paper, you limeys, you know, think you can do anything. So that <laughs> got me out of the problem of having to do an American accent. And it would have, would have been dubbed if they weren't happy anyway. But um, yeah, just that just that one little scene. But he um, <laughs> he did think he was a master of all trades. And again, it's it, uh, somewhere I've got a picture of it. But he you know he had his horses, and he he said he was a master sort of sailor. He'd gone across the Atlantic, um, and he was in charge when we were in the Caribbean. He was in charge of the boat which had the camera on it, sort of, and he. Uh, he, took, he rammed the, the boat that we were traveling on. I mean, it, it was totally incompetent. And somewhere, and it would be worth a fortune. I, I, for some unknown reason, I had a camera and I took a picture of it at the, the exact moment when he hit the boat. And he just looked so much like a naughty schoolboy having been found out. Ian, and, get that picture online. Well, you need to do it. I, I, I can't find it. I mean, on it, it, oh. apart from the fun of it, it would be worth a lot of money because, uh, I mean, that really was a Benny Hill moment. Oh, that would that would be brilliant. If you can find that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. I only tell that story in the commentary and I laugh my head off when I first heard that. Wow. Well, that, that's it. But, but they also, you know, they when we were filming there, they, the, the boat was out at sea and, uh, and uh, you know, he was on shore. And they had no, no contact. I mean, I had to swim. I just bought some walkie-talkies in New York. And I had to swim out with one of them to the boat so that they could talk from the boat to the director on the land. It's real CTV Pan sort of filming, isn't it? You know, hand-me-down scripts. I mean, were you getting... Was the script pretty much finished as far as your character was concerned? Yes. Were you, were you getting I, I, lines given to you on a sort of... Yeah, you know, I, don't, I cannot remember that changing as we did the film. And uh, so the only changes were in the Land Rover Jeep with Richard Johnson was driving when we get to the island. And uh, Richard Johnson improvised an awful lot of that. In fact, I mean, I thought I was back at Stratford because it almost seemed to me he was sort of saying a blank verse. 
But uh, other than that, I, I don't think any changes. I think they probably made one or two changes at the end, or <clears throat> I'm not too sure how it was supposed to finish. I mean, I always thought it should have finished on the boat, but then they added all the stuff on the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. Which is which um, is a genuinely hysterical sequence, you know, because the uh, the zombies are now invading New York, but the, the traffic is happily yeah, trundling yeah, yeah. up and down the bridge on either side. I I, I think if you if you examine the film closely, I mean, I think there are quite a lot of uh, incongruous and uh, uh, you know, incomplete things that sort of happen in it, and the bits of absolute nonsense. <laughs> um, but that you know that that's part of the pleasure of I think of, 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 of films like this. Now. Richard Johnson always, he'd done a fair few Italian or European movies yeah, by this yeah. stage, so he's very comfortable uh, working with their particular, you know, zany circus-like style. Um, how well did you get on with, with Richard Johnson? Uh, when I did it first, um, he, he sort of said he found me rather cold, and I, I told him subsequently that that was just to, to the fact that I was, you know, totally unsure of myself and where I sort of fitted in and what I was supposed to do as a sort of leading actor and all the rest of it. So I missed out on a lot of the fun they had there. Um, I mean, since then, we've become, we've become good friends because we, we go to a couple of conventions a year, I mean, usually in America. And uh, when we all meet up, I mean, we all get on really well. Um, uh, that's, that's Richard, Al Kleiber, and Otaviano Delacroix. Um, and I said the convention I'd just come come back from in Florida two weeks ago. Richard was there, and Ottaviano was there. Um, and thank goodness as well, because I mean it's it's sort of seeing them and being with them that makes these sort of trips worthwhile. If you got the chance now, you know, if all of a sudden, because there's lots and lots of zombie movies being made, you know, you've just had Cockneys versus Zombies, yeah, the whole yeah. thing has gone right round in a circle yeah, yeah, to you know parodies and ridiculous things yeah. and great concepts, but. You know, if you if you got the chance to appear in another splattery zombie epic, would you take it? Uh, I, I'd I'd sort of take it straight away. Yeah. I mean, where I live up here in Southwest Scotland, I think they made two zombies in the past three years, zombie films. Um, and I say I only live up the road. And they if they don't ask me to play a zombie, I don't play a zombie. Um, no, I, in, I, in, we're going to make this happen. It would be even nicer if some of the people who have been sort of influenced, by, like Tarantino and all, and etc. in America, <coughs> if they said, "Would you like to come and do a little, you know, piece in this style or the other?" I mean, one would obviously sort of leap at it. Um, but uh, but I mean, it, it hasn't happened so far. But if it did, that would, you know, if I could remember the line, well, not if I was a zombie, I probably wouldn't have any lines. But as you say, I mean, they're you know they're no. cropping up everywhere. And I, I say I I haven't seen the film, but I mean I'm I laugh when I think about it of the film which has Richard Briars as a pensioner, isn't it? Being no, that's, uh, in the race with the Zimmer frame and the zombie. I it just conjures up such a wonderful, wonderful picture. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. You're very, very welcome. We both I'm really enjoyed. It. And moving on swiftly, we spoke to James White, who oversaw the restoration of Zombie Flesh Eaters. And we started by asking him, what exactly does a restoration supervisor do? Um, most of the time, uh, just flogs for work, I guess, uh, looking for the next job. But uh, I've been fortunate over this past year to uh, be asked to supervise some really incredibly interesting projects, Zombie Flesh Eaters being one of them. Uh, incredible pleasure to, and uh, an honor to work on. And uh, and happy that it's having the reception that it is. So what's your actual background then in terms of restoration? I, uh, I worked, well, I've worked in film restoration um, for, I guess, maybe about 15, 18 years. Uh, I've, as you can tell from my accent, I'm, uh, I'm not British. I come from the States. 
Uh, so I've worked for various archives, the George Eason House. I worked for Kodak for a spell. Uh, worked for Cineric, uh, the uh, restoration and optical facility in New York City, uh, as well as um, the BFI, which I worked for for a good decade before I made the move to uh, restoration supervisor for freelance about a year and a half ago. So these days, who would be your main, main customers on a freelance basis? Then? Well, yeah, whoever wants me, really. I'm, I'm <laughs> happy to... Uh, to, to take all, all comers, but um, uh, because of my contacts and, uh, and friendships within the industry, Masters of Cinema, the Eureka label, uh, and uh, Arrow Films and Video have uh, been getting the majority of my business lately. And uh, I, I guess the obvious question is, what restorations have you worked on recently, other than Zombie Flesh Eaters, obviously, that, sure, that, that sure. listeners might have heard of? Yeah, well, there's been a few. The big one that's actually, I believe it's out today, is uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, Carl Dreyer's uh, masterpiece from 1928, the, uh, uh, voted one of the top ten films of all time in the recent Sight and Sound poll. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those films that uh, I was just pinching myself that I get the opportunity to work on at all because it's such an honor and a, and a, and a privilege. Uh, but that took quite a long time, quite a few months of working this year. Uh, we uh, and. Uh, like I say, the uh, the results are are currently coming out on Blu-ray. I think as of today, and uh, so far reception for that has been very pleasing. People seem really happy with it, so that's that's great. Can can you start off by giving us a, sort of an overview of just how the restoration process works? I mean, in terms of something like Joan of Arc from 1929, I mean, do you have to sort of locate the film materials, the original materials? I mean, how does it actually yeah, with, work? With, process? Well, with any with anything, uh, Joan of Arc on down to zombie flesh eaters and. Well, that'd be that'd be a great double bill, wouldn't it? Um, the uh, <laughs> uh, lots of suffering in both, actually. Um, anyway, yeah, it it really all comes down to the availability of what the film materials are. Um, with almost everything, what you're trying to do is get as close to that original negative as possible. The uh, the negative that went through the camera that served as the basis for all uh, all the following film elements in the film chain. So. Sometimes that's it's not that easy. Uh, for the first half of the 20th century, film negatives were periodically destroyed, uh, or they were just printed uh, ad nauseum. So they were basically just in terrible condition by the came by the time they came to the end of their print run. So, uh, fortunately, in later years, uh, the lab process changed to include things like fine-grained positives, interpause, things in the middle of the chain that uh, that would still be maybe not as ideal as going from the original neg, but certainly better than going from, say, a print that had been screened thousands of times for everyone. So really, you're just trying to go back in time and trying to find the best element that exists. And sometimes that can mean uh, quite a bit of research across the globe, uh, film archives, film distributors, rights holders don't always, who may own the rights to the films on an international basis, may not even know where these elements are. Um, some films have such a confused and complicated history, and film materials may have changed hands or been lost at different times, that uh, it sometimes adds up to quite a mystery story to find what the best materials are. Um, so there's, for Zombie Flesh Eaters, for example, we had access to the original two-perf technoscope negative, which Variety Communications, formerly Violet Variety Films, uh, the original distributor of the film, and now the international rights holder of the film, uh, so will they made this accessible to us for this purpose, and we were very pleased that that would be the case, because otherwise we would have to rely on uh, supplemental material, uh, interpause, interneg, CRIs, things like that, and none of those elements would have yielded the kind of results that we were able to get 
from the from going from the neck. Being at this end of, of looking at movies such as this or any kind of movie, and you hear about restorations, you hear about you know. Uh, you know, they've done some painstaking work on this frame by frame. We mm-hmm. just look at the end, end result and don't really understand or appreciate, you know, the actual no, sure, hands sure. and effort that goes into it. As I made a mistake, you know, with the restoration that you did on, uh, on Zombies is because I, I assumed mistakenly, um, and I hold my hands up on this, that there was some, some DNR had been done. Yeah. You know, this is a film that, you know, many people have seen in very, very different prints over the years. VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, you know, grotty theatrical prints. You name it, it's been all over the show. Um, and, you know, at, at this end, you kind of, you make assumptions that some things have been done. Now, I'd like to know what kind of pressure, or if indeed there was any pressure you had from anybody at Arrow or whoever you're working for, do they do they try to make you do stuff like, uh, you know? I'm, no, I, it's a fairly hands-off approach at Arrow, at least, and I, I've been fortunate with my, I'd like to think that my track record at least shows that I uh, give the utmost care to the projects I work on, and uh, I people trust my judgment in terms of, of, of what comes out. But in terms of zombie flesh eaters, there certainly wasn't any pressure to make it look uh, overly digital or sharp in a, in a artificial way or anything like that. I mean, I, I, the tools that you're, that, that you can use now and digital restoration has grown by leaps and bounds over the last decade. Uh, the tools are so powerful and they can so easily be abused. You know, it's, it's very easy to, go into to to scan an image uh to transfer an image and look at it and say well look at all this look at all this grain let's just take all this out you know let's 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 just scrub all this out because uh you know that'll make it a lot easier to paint out the dirt and everything else i mean you have this this power this responsibility and so you want to go very easy on the pedal when it comes to things like that um in terms of zombie flesh eaters uh because we were going back so far in the film chain to the orient the actual original element. Um, the grain was was there. It was natural. It was beautiful. Why would we do anything to uh, uh, to, to hurt that, to disturb that, to make it different than it was? Um, so all the the restoration procedure, which is a number of different processes in which you are trying to take out uh, dirt, scratches, blemishes, uh, warts on frames, um, uh, you know, stability issues. Um, uh, density fluctuations that are exhibited through things like flicker, um, you know, all, all these sorts of things. You know, you're, you're using a different set of tools to try to, uh, to try to correct for, try to improve as much as possible. And I guess the way I work is, I try to improve it as much as I think uh, I can without causing undue harm through digital means. You know, so um, I could probably get it cleaner. I could probably get it uh, sharper. I could probably do all these things, but it would be further removed from that original film image than, uh, than what I started with. I mean, a big thing for me personally is what I like to call the integrity of the film image. It's respect to those photochemical pro- uh, properties that the film has. And uh, like I say, it's so easy to go too far. And um, whether that's because certain studios or uh, distributors want more of a, I don't know, a modern sort of PlayStation look to their films or whatever, or uh, they, they, they want their blacks to be really, really black and their whites to be really, really white, any, any really zingy and sharp and uh, whatever. For me, I just want the film to look as close as possible as it did the day it came out in theaters. 
you know, and so everything that I put into it in terms of those processes of restoration and grading uh, and everything else is is done with that purpose in mind. Well, of course, we, we've already seen um, a Blu-ray release of Zombie Flesh Eaters before from mm. another company, and uh, a lot of us already know we're that the, the, the colours were. This <laughs> yeah. is this is this yeah. would be yes, blue underground, and uh, the colours were certainly boosted on that to a degree where it definitely had a detrimental effect, as far as I was concerned, upon the image that you saw, because it, you know the whole point of the movie is the gore. Now, you made it very lurid, very disgustingly colourful, which is a nice idea, you know, yeah. in the concept of the movie, but it had a detrimental effect because it warped out the rest of the, uh, you know, the gory elements. And you didn't do that, which is, you know, all all praise to you, James. Fantastic. You didn't, you well, didn't do it. Why do you think they did do that? Well, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about, about uh, a Blue Underground or any other label. I mean, they, I'm sure they did the best with the materials they had at hand. I, I don't, you know, I can only speculate about the process that they underwent to achieve the results that they did. And at the time, I mean, fair play, they came out with the best darn-looking copy of Zombie Flesh, Zombie 2, Zombie, whatever you want to call it, that anyone had seen before. And it was terrific. Hands, you know, hands up to them. They were great. Um, you know, it's, it's a little unfair in that I was able to use that as a yardstick to, to overcome you know, so I, I saw what they did, I saw the results that they had, and I was able to use that as a reference to go several steps further. Take a cue from, from where they did right and where they may have uh, fallen down a little bit here and there. I mean, I, I don't know. I, you say, has there been any pressure in regards to the restoration of zombie flesh eaters? There hasn't been any direct pressure on me, but I am mindful of the fact that people felt very passionately about that Blue Underground release. And from what I understood, all the literature on the web and everything about it was that uh, they had had, um, you know, the original director of photography, uh, Silvio, in to supervise the grading, uh, that it was from the original negative, uh, that there's a little film on YouTube, I think you can find, where they take you through the steps of what they did. It's all a little odd just because Variety, the film distributor who owns the international rights, um, and owns the actual film negative. There's only one of those in the world, and they own it. Uh, they've never heard of Blue Underground, and they, and they, never, <laughs> they never made this material accessible to them, um, at least not directly. It's possible that maybe through change of hands, uh, the further back you go, that maybe somehow the negative was captured digitally, and they ended up with something. So I, I, you know, I'm not disputing any of their claims there. I do find it curious if uh, if they were grading it with the director of photography on hand that they went the way they did with it. it as you can say, the, the the lurid look fits the feeling of the film to a certain degree. Uh, everybody has very red skin. Everybody looks like they're going to expire from blood pressure any moment. You know, yeah. um, it's uh, people ha have that look in mind when they're looking at films of this type, this genre, this era of films. But um, but it's clearly a few steps away from the optimal grading of what that film was capable of. I, it looked like, um, because like I said, we had the Blue Underground to reference. Um, we, uh, we looked at it throughout the process to just compare with the work that we were doing. And um, it looked like they were fighting an element somewhat, you know, that uh, the element was, was being pushed in the red or pink direction. And uh, in the grading, they were... They were having a hard time with that, so they achieved the results they did. I don't know. This is pure speculation on my part, and I probably shouldn't even say anything about it. But it's uh, if they started with the neg, as we did, uh, all it does is really provide a, a terrific example of the of the dramatic differences one can end up with uh, using the same 
same element. Um, so, I, it's it, you know, it's it's an interesting case. Um, who knows? Maybe some will come out of the woodwork and uh, and do something superior to what we've done here. I hope not, but uh, could happen. Um, but uh, but for now, anyway, I hope that people appreciate that what we did was um, certainly not uh, to uh, in any way. Um, uh, put down the work that Blue Underground had done or, or anything like that. We just basically wanted to make the best darn Zombie Flesh Eaters release we possibly could. And we wanted to get it back to looking the way that uh, that film would have would have would have looked in those original prints and that original negative and hopefully that's what we've achieved here. James, since you had access to the original camera negative, did did you do any restoration on that before you started the process of uh, scanning it? No, we didn't do any photochemical restoration on it. And and to do that actually we would have had to um make a new element. I mean, when you talk about photochemical restoration, you're basically talking about creating a new preservation element from something else, uh, which would have actually been a loss of generation had we done that. Um, I mean, the, the neg was in fairly good shape. It, 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 it was rough around the edges in a few places, and it, it had um, some density fluctuation issues, flicker, like I've said before, a few dodgy joins and, and, uh, and uh, warps here and there. And it, it had all the... the uh, minor scratches and dirt and blemishes that you see in material from this time, but it was in fairly good nick. Uh, you know, uh, coming off of uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, which I was using an element basically made in 1928, it was uh, it was a dramatic difference uh, <laughs> in, in terms of what we had to deal with. So no, it was um, it was a fairly robust element, and uh, I was fairly happy with the the results we got directly from scanning it. The, the underwater sequence where you have the yellowy. Ooh flickering line, yeah. which has always been there. I mean, obviously that would have posed enormous problems if you tried to remove that. You would have left digital smearing and tracking all over the place, wouldn't you? So, It's a prime example of the kind of restoration in which if I had all the time in the world and uh, all the budget in the world, maybe I could make it a little bit better. But that yellow staining that you're referencing in that, in that infamous scene, um, which hopefully, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a naked woman, a shark, and a zombie in it. People aren't looking <laughs> at that, are they? Yeah, you are <laughs> so, kind of distracted from it, yeah. But, but it's true that that has always been in there. And although I, I, this is speculation on my part, I'm, I'm of the strong opinion that that damage was uh, uh, from either in-camera fault when the, when the footage was done. It was done by a second unit. It wasn't done by uh, Silvio Savati. Um, and the, uh, or just probably more likely in lab processing when the original film was processed. Either way, that chemical stain, which is exactly what it looks like, um, shows up now and then on various shots throughout that sequence. And it is what it is. It's the kind of thing that the further you go in printing and, and, uh, Blu-ray and DVD, the further you get away from that element, uh, the more concealed you get. I think you, you probably know the story about the Wizard of Oz and the Tin Man and the, the wires that were invisible on all the prints that were ever released <laughs> and supplemental video. Well, when Warner Brothers went back and did the, uh, the 4K restoration from a few years ago, all of a sudden they could see the wires because they'd gone right back to the neg. It was, you know, beautiful grain. All of a sudden, all these wires were in sharp focus. <laughs> and it, it throws up all sorts of questions about what the filmmaker intended because um, none of them, at least not in 1938 when The Wizard of Oz was made. I'm sure Victor Fleming wasn't worrying about uh, uh, how things would look in <laughs> 1080p resolution and <laughs> these wires. In any case, with, with Zombie Flesh Eaters, you, um, 
yeah, so the further down you go, if you look for it, you'll see it in almost any kind of DVD or VHS I've seen. It just gets further and further hidden, uh, the, the poor of the quality. So it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where if I could, I tried to clean it and reduce it as much as possible. And we did reduce it somewhat, but it's, it's the kind of thing where you're replacing a photochemical smear that was always there, a photochemical damage, with some sort of digital artifacting that I didn't want to be present in the, uh, in the final result. So I, you know, I, I got it as best as I could, but I ended up just leaving it. James, yeah. can you just uh, perhaps explain a little bit about the, the scanning process? I mean, for example, did you do a wet gate scan on, on the original negative? We didn't do a wet gate. Uh, what we did was a, uh, a full 2K scan from corner to corner. Um, and uh, and we, we inspected that uh, thoroughly and then rescanned any any shots or sequences or reels that we thought might benefit from, from uh, just looking at again to make sure that we were getting everything in sharp focus. Uh, wet gate wasn't an option with the distributor. They didn't really want to do that. And to be fair, you know, films of that era, I mean, this is, you know, arguably speaking, uh, in the history of cinema, this is not that old an element. 1979 doesn't really qualify as an old film, but uh, they still didn't want to subject the material to that kind of chemical uh, attention, to the, you know, with, with their own. They were, they were happy for us to scan it, but, uh, but it had to be dry, which may have reduced, if we were able to do a, a wet gate scan, it may have reduced some of the issues, especially with vertical scratches that we faced. Um, there was predominant vertical scratching on the far right of frame, which if you look closely, you'll see rearing its head uh, very subtly now and then throughout the film. But we did reduce it substantially. A wet gate might have corrected for that a little bit. But with wet gate itself, um, it leaves its own tracks. You know, I mean, if, if the wet gate um, scans that I've seen, the results of wet gate can often lead these, leave these kinds of... Uh, these liquidy kind of uh, photographic artifacts, and they're they're much more pleasing than what digital artifacts would be, but they're still an artifact of the process that I'd rather do without. So, uh, so no, it was it was a straight 2K scan. Um, I should probably say something about technoscope for those who aren't familiar, but technoscope as a format was a was a fairly popular lower cost alternative uh, that was uh, shooting cinemascope that was really popular with. European directors from certainly, the, certainly with Fulci, yeah, at the time. With, certainly with Fulci. Well, through the through the late '60s, because I, a couple of years ago I restored a film by Barbara Schroeder called La Valley. I don't know if you've seen it. It's the one yeah, I've seen La Valley because it's got a Pink Floyd soundtrack. It does. Yeah, that's what he's <laughs> most famous for. But it's actually a great little film. But he he had shot at Technoscope on a budget. Um, in, uh, I think it was shot in Papua New Guinea. Anyway, the uh, what Technoscope means is you're taking up two perf. Uh, two perfs per frame instead of the traditional four. So you basically end up using half the film that you would otherwise, and it's a, a, you know less film to process, less film to pay for. Um, the thing about technoscope is that every time, everything after that, from the um, from the interpause onward onto the prints, is blown up to four perf. So what happens when you go from two perf to four perf is you uh, you lose image area. It's basically cropped. On, on all sides to fit into that four-perf blown-up frame, so which is which is one reason why any version you'll see of Zombie Flesh Eaters on DVD or or otherwise will show less image area than the one that uh, that we're releasing now on uh, on Arrow because we were able uh, to scan the complete Technoscope two-perf neg, which means 
you can see from side to side the entire image area as was on the frame, um, which is great. You, you know, the uh, film is, is precious. Every frame of its precious. We want to show as much as possible. So, uh, so here we were able to do that. It, it just seems strange that in a year that's seen some fabulous restorations of like Lawrence of Arabia, oh, yeah. uh, Ten Commandments, yeah. Ben Hare, that sort of thing, that a, a film that, I mean, to us, Zombie Flesh is, 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 you know, it's gold dust. It's, a, you know, it's an absolute <laughs> masterpiece of its genre. But a lot yeah. of people would be thinking like, well, Zombie Flesh Eaters, you know, it was a video <laughs> nasty. It's just, just well, gore for gore's sake. And yet it gets this much, much attention. Well, why shouldn't it? You know, it's a pillar of its own genre, a milestone in its own right. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, you, you know, it deserves it. Exactly, <laughs> thank it, thank it, God it, you did it. You're, no, you're exactly right, and I, 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 I hope that it leads to uh, the same kind of. Att- I mean, I, I, I know that Arrow would like to do more and more projects uh, for similar films in their catalog like this, and hopefully it'll lead to quite a few more. I, I only think it's a good thing. Uh, there's an unfortunate tendency to for some film historians or critics or what have you to to think that maybe not everything is worth restoring, you know, that, that these films, um, a, a film like Zombie Flesh Eaters, especially in this country, because as you can tell from my accent, I'm not British, so we never had the video nasty period. We never had the uh, the video act of 1984 and all <laughs> that that banned and, and was cut. So, oh, you haven't lived. No, so, so Zombie was always freely available. All these films were available on VHS and later DVD in the States. But in Britain, it's it's... It's really interesting the um, the, the road the, the journey that this film in particular has taken from its earliest cut to ribbons video bootleg concoctions uh, to you know through to decent looking DVDs but still compromised by cuts or what have you uh, to basically accessing the original uncut negative and being able to do a restoration on this level uh, I hope that it'll be pleasing to most people in that. Um, you know, maybe some people fetishize about the fact that these films should remain looking as, you know, as grotty <laughs> and, and damaged and, 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 you know, maybe, uh, you know, with, with all sorts of video noise or what have you, that, that if you remove yeah. that kind of uh, that layer of, of uh, muck from it and, and reveal it to the, to, the, to the beautiful film that it is, it's beautifully shot, it's wonderfully directed, it's an incredibly exciting film, it's incredibly well made, it resurrected uh, Fulci's career. It's an amazing film. Anyway, you slice it. Now, it's not everybody's idea of a, of a classic, but it is a classic. And it's, uh, it, it deserves this kind of treatment as do plenty more films of its type. I mean, I, I would love to, love to do, uh, well, a long list of films I'd love to restore. But there, there's certainly plenty of films of the Jala level, of the, uh, of, of the uh, of films of the horror, you know, from, from Italy, from Germany, from from Europe that I would love to, to do the same thing with. I think, you know, all films deserve, yeah, deserve to, to survive and, uh, and all films deserve to have this kind of treatment if, uh, if people are willing to give it a chance. It's good to hear that you're speaking with such passion about a film such as this or any kind of film you're working on. But when you're spending, I mean, how long does it take, weeks, months to work on certain projects? Is there a certain level of detachment that you get from obviously watching these films? You've probably seen zombies more times than I have. And since I I was 11 years old, I've never stopped watching it. But, you know, you've worked (laughs) on every single frame of that that movie. Do you have to have a, you know, a detachment from the work in progress? 
it's the one downside to it that you end up you do end up seeing something about a thousand times by the time you're through and I could probably uh, recite uh, the whole of Dumbie Flesh Eaters now, uh, not in Italian, but at least in English for you if you want it. But, uh, but no, it's. I, I think working on it to this degree and really seeing the artistry behind the filmmaking, um, the photography, uh, everything about it, really just makes your appreciation grow all the more. The amazing stuff they they wound up with um, that you're able to actually reveal in ways that have never been before audiences, at least not since the, those initial print releases in the theaters. Um, so people can really dissect these films and, uh, and grow a new appreciation for what they hold. Um, uh, I mean, Zombie Flesh Eaters, I, I, like I say, I, I didn't grow up in the video nasty era, so my appreciation for it wasn't possibly as passionate as a lot of British friends of mine who grew up doing just what you did, bought it a thousand different times at different concoctions, <laughs> and, and we're happy to to uh, to make do with the best available for years, and you know these films are almost enshrouded in, in myth about uh, and but uh, but hopefully anyway the I mean I've certainly grown the appreciation for it now I think it's I think it's a terrific film I was really happy to to see it coming out and looking the way it has it was great fun to work on great people you get to uh, get in contact people like Steve Thrower. Who, uh, as you probably know, wrote the book on Fulci, Beyond Terror, a few years ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, out of print, but we're hoping that uh, that it'll come back into print. I think he's writing a book on Franco at the moment. So. Oh, just Franco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, incredibly passionate people. And if you asked me earlier about pressure, if anything, the pressure is just to not to disappoint those people who uh, who really revere the film. Who. It's, <laughs> It's an emotional experience. It's an experience of growing up, you know, a very important important film for them. And uh, those are the people I don't want to disappoint. As we move into, you know, we're moving now into a sort of a digital future where people are shooting on digital cameras. Do you, do you think mm-hmm. that the sort of the, 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 uh, the art of restoration is going to become less and less important? Um, it's really, it's probably too early to tell. I, I, the only things that I've worked on that would qualify at all for... I don't think they even do, is, is I've had to work on old tape format type restorations. People who shot stuff in the 80s or whatever on various tape formats, um, hi-8s or what have you. And boy, I'll tell you, those things have a short shelf life. I mean, the thing about all these new technologies, um, they come out, they're supposed to be the next great thing, but you don't know what kind of problems they throw up in a few years' time. And you know, with with all these things, nothing has had the staying power of uh, of film. I mean, 35 mil, if you keep it in optimal conditions, it can last for hundreds of years. And nothing produced so far has had that kind of shelf life to prove. You know, they've been able to prove. So, I'm. Well, I love digital technology with what it gives us, the tools it gives us uh, to apply to these films to uh, to make these films uh, look the way they can and to and, and to add a lot to restoration and preservation in the whole um, it's still digital it's still uh, a kind of an invisible technology that has no tangibility it's um it's a wonderful tool but when it comes down to it there's never been a better tool invented than 35 mil as far as I'm concerned yeah I um, mean, in turn, as, as a you know, as a restoration professional, what are the restorations done by other people that you most admire? Well, I mean, there's been so many great restorations in the past few years. Anything the Film Foundation does, uh, Martin Scorsese's company, they bring so much uh, 
you know, passion and attention to, to what they do. They're, they're responsible for the recent Paul Pressburger restorations of the Red Shoes and the life of that Colonel Blimp. And I believe that they're going to be, uh, they, they plan to do them all, all, all the films in, uh, of the Paul Pressburgers by the time they're done. Um, the BFI, uh, you know, I mean, I realize it's my alma mater, but, uh, but the BFI are, are, you know, a wonderful restoration team over there and the work and passion that they brought to the recent Hitchcock Silent Project. Um, if you had the chance to see their restoration of Blackmail, for instance, that's an amazing example of a silent film being made from the original neg, something that almost never happens because original silent film negs are just not, <laughs> they don't exist. This was one case where it did, and the difference is just so dramatic. It's just so beautiful. The, the, you know, the, there's a lot of great restorations out there. You've already mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I guess my only worry is that these top-tier restorations, these Red Shoes or Lawrence of Arabias, what have you, they're amazing, and it's it's wonderful that they get the attention and the budgets that they need to to uh, to create these wonderful restorations. But I I worry that a lot of similar or lesser known but but equally great films fall through the cracks because nobody has the budget to restore everything. But I'd like to think at least that um, that a lot of that other ca- other titles in say the catalogs of Warner Brothers. It's great that they re-restored Casablanca for the third or fourth time, but, <laughs> yeah. you know... <laughs> I'll, I'll never stop, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I understand it. It's, it's, it's all dollars and cents, but it, um, it would be great if they could uh, give the same kind of attention to equally great films in their catalog. But, you know, it's... Maybe in those cases, it's not up to, to the rights holder. It's for somebody like Arrow to say, hey... Um, if you're not going to do it, we'd love to do it. And um, if we can license it from you, we'll we'll do the film proud, as we've done with some of the flesh eaters. Um, James, when you're when you're grading uh, restoration, I mean, how do you decide what's correct and what was originally intended? Because if you don't have the original director of photography there to tell you, it's true. We didn't uh, we didn't have Silvio Savati uh, sitting with us. We did have the Blue Underground disc, which if uh, if Silvio Savati um, uh, apparently supervised that grade. So we had it to refer to uh, throughout. What we what we do is we look at the, the film element itself. Uh, we, we usually have uh, uh, sorry, supplemental uh, reference material, say prints from the time, that sort of thing, which we can reference and so we can see how those were done. The original neg is almost like a black, blank canvas, though. You can push the film any which way you want to. However, the film does have a natural feel in the in the grading suite. Um, these films were expertly shot, and if you're going to, say, push it in one direction that feels like you're fighting against it, and the, the highlights, uh, the dark areas, uh, the, 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 the warmth, the cold, the feel of the film, uh, it doesn't feel right. If, if it feels like the film's not agreeing with you, you're clearly down the wrong path. So a lot is, is just instinctual. Um, you, you grade film long enough, and um, and you sort of know which way to go. Now, with Zombie Flesh Eaters, like I say, we had reference material to to uh, uh, to look at throughout the process, so we didn't stray too far from that. Um, I would say that with the overall grade with uh, with Zombie Flesh Eaters, we we looked at the Blue Underground throughout, and we basically tried to grade it in a way that it didn't look. Uh, we tried to grade it as if. Uh, going by the Sylvia Savate grade, um, but without 
being handicapped by a problematic element that was being forced in a red or pink direction. So in a way, we achieved the results, I think, that, um, that maybe um, they would have had they not had such problems with their material. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does nice. make sense. Yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, earlier versions of, of zombie flesh eaters and the bootleg copies that went around during the height of the video nasty uh, furor. I had the, the strong uncut version; it was advertised of zombie flesh eaters, and it was letterboxed. And it looked now everyone's going to say, "Well, you don't remember how it looked back then on VHS and Betamax." <laughs> I had them on both, but the thing is, I did watch it a hell of a lot. You know, and, and, and for a good number of years, and then obviously I upgraded to, you know, the American version and then another version and then umpteen versions. But I always remember that first one, which was very, very swiftly lifted off shelves and banned. But yep. that, you know, the version that we, we've got now, courtesy of your good self, does look, does remind me so heavily of that original print. Now, that was only a VHS copy, I know, but the colour on that was exactly the sort of thing that I remembered you know, from all my <laughs> wrongly formative years with video nasties. But, you know, so I, I was made up to see that that had been maintained. That grading seemed to me correct. And as you say, it's kind of like a, an organic process. You kind of know when you're pushing things too far. And it it's, is. It's, it's reassuring exactly. to hear that. It's, uh, it's exactly that. Now, I, as you can understand, I didn't have access to, uh, to your VHS, um, but uh, I, uh, but your VHS, uh, given the time that it was made, um, would have almost certainly been made from a print, so probably a first-generation film made from the uh, the original release, which would have um, which would have been true to the original lab grading scheme overseen by Silvio Savatti. So that in itself uh, is is great. If we matched it with what your memory, uh, your first memories of how that film should have looked. That's uh, that's definitely in keeping with what we wanted to do. We didn't. Well, want I've it. still got that tape. I just can't oh, play you? it. Oh, so you can actually do a cross comparison. <laughs> Fantastic. You post some screen grabs for it, and we'll see if uh, see how it measures up. <laughs> I'll have to dig it out, but I, I actually cannot play it at all. <laughs> it's now it's probably it's probably even rotted, even worse than where my zombie. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Keep it around. You got to. These things are wonderful. You want to. Like, yeah, they're part of your history. You know, keep them around. <laughs> yeah. When you were asking me about digital restoration and um, issues that come up and that sort of thing, I, I meant to just put in a little addendum about. Uh, well, basically, there's been this troubling trend of um, certain facilities or uh, studios working in a way that uh, that could be detrimental to the film image. What they do is they, they degrain the image completely. Um, they take all the original grain out. And that in itself makes their job much easier because once all the that problematic grain is, uh, is taken out of the image, it's much easier to clean everything up because you can crank your, your, uh, your D-spot settings up to 10, you know, plus 10. You can get rid of absolutely everything. The problem is what you do after that is you regrain it. Um, you put this sort of faux artificial digital grain software on top of the image, which makes it look. Uh, I've, I've seen good and bad examples of it, and sometimes you, it's it's difficult to tell. But what you really need to look for is the fact that the grain looks like it's on a loop. You know, it's 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 obviously manufactured. It's not the original film material. And the thing about original film grain is it is so organic. It's an instrumental part of that. Uh, that original film image, it breathes. It's, it's, it makes life hell for uh, certain people in terms of 
uh, bandwidth broadcasts and things like that. And so because of issues like that, film grain is looked at as problematic by people. But it's important to note that film grain is absolutely the image that you're looking at. And if you take that out, if you reduce it, or if you change it into something new or, or you slap on some sort of digital grain in its place, it's no longer the original film. It's like you're looking at it through some sort of, I don't know, digital sheet or something. It's, it's just, it doesn't have that same detail, that same life, that same integrity that it did. So this is, unfortunately, it's a fairly worrying trend that I'm seeing popping up more and more on, on projects that I'm looking at, uh, masters that have been delivered in this way uh, from various places. And when that happens, I just, there's nothing you can do except to just start again. Go back mm -hmm. to the film and start again, because once you take that original grain out, there's no getting it back. And, uh, and it's important that people know that. Well, we've, we've tried to preach that um, through our reviews, you know, ad infinitum, um, especially that, that artificial grain, that horrible frozen crystalline nature that it yeah. takes on sometimes. You know, it, it's very horribly distracting and really a lot of European films transferred to Blu-ray do seem to be exhibiting that. Uh, it's I, I get, really, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate because we're all working with very similar tools, but it's all in how you apply them. It's all at the levels you set them on and what you feel you're, you're happy with for that film to be represented by. It's, I, I, could, I could apply that frozen grain setting tomorrow to everything I do, and some people like that look, but my God, that's Oof. not film. It no, it, it, it doesn't look right at all. No. Well, hopefully we can use Zombie Flesh Eaters um, as the flagship for how things should be done. And, uh, and let's just hope you get a lot more work from Arrow. Well, I would love to. I would, I would love to do more projects just like this because it's been fantastic fun. And like I say, I, I hope this um, is something of a benchmark for people to see how films like this, maybe not loved by everyone, but certainly passionately loved by those who, who are into <laughs> these sorts of films, um, how, how great these films can, can look if, if, uh, if treated with respect and, and done properly. Zombie, zombie films in particular, and you know we've got to mention George Romero and Dawn of the Dead, yes. Yes. which have had you know his films have had numerous versions over the years as well. But you know the cinematography on his films is horrible. It's flat. <laughs> it's TV style. You know there's only so much I would say, and I, I know and his films are superior in many many ways to Fulci's. But they don't look as good. They do not look no. visually as arresting or as sumptuous as what Fulci was, was coming up with. So these particular movies, as abhorrent as they may be to some people, you know, they're, they're visually sublime. They're gorgeous um, showcases of cinematography. Okay, they're, they're maggot-ridden and there's blood and pus <laughs> all over the, the damn place. Um, yeah. But they, de they deserve more of the treatment that you can bestow them than the likes of the more critically lauded um, Romero movies, which really don't cater for you know cinematography at all. They're very flat, very drab. Well, it, it is true. They have, they're 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 much cruder looking. And yeah. I, but I think that has that ties in with Italy's uh, history as a, you know in in cinematography, the, the amazing visuals that Italian cinematographers have brought to uh, to their films. I mean, I've restored films by. Antonioni, Pasolini, and now Fulci, and there's uh, there's a continuation in in terms of the attention to the image. Uh, one funny thing, though, is is that of course they were 
post-dubbing their films right up through the, the mid-'80s. So you could say that all that attention that's fostered on the beautiful <laughs> film image, often widescreen image, is, is, was partly because they didn't have to think a damn about, uh, about sound, and which is why they, <laughs> they often sound so clunky. <laughs> you know, we, uh, in terms of the sound restoration and what we did with this, we basically took a hands-off approach. I didn't want to try to, uh, to wrangle the sync any better than it was originally. It, uh, it is what it is, as it is with most Italian films of the time, and who knows what some of these actors were saying, because you have this combination of Italian actors and English actors and American actors all sort of thrown into this stew. Um, and I, you look at their lips, and God knows if they're saying anything remotely to what you're hearing <laughs> on the soundtrack, but... Uh, it's, well, uh, actually, James, um, we asked that question of Ian McCulloch last oh, week, and he said, oh, in some oh, cases, yeah, so let me know. Yeah. in some cases, they would just count one, <laughs> two, three, and they would just match the dialogue to whatever dialogue to, to them counting on the scene. So that was apparently one of their tricks. Um, just to wrap up, uh, I, I, a bit slightly off-topic question, but I, I just want to get your opinion, really. Um, obviously, when you're restoring most of the films that you're working with at uh, 24 frames a second, I suppose if you go back far enough, you're going to go back to say 18 frames a second. We're now yeah. moving into a 48 frame a second future with, with things like The Hobbit. Have yeah. you got any particular opinion on, on higher frame rate movies? I haven't seen I haven't seen the the Hobbit uh, uh, in motion yet. I think I've, I've seen the 24 FPS trailer in the theater is all I've seen, but I haven't actually seen the the 48 FPS. I mean, to be fair, film restoration is currently set up if you work in digital to only I can only really work in 24 FPS um, and any other frame rates, be them silent frame rates of 18 to 20. Uh, what you do is you basically restore in 24, and then you uh, create a separate version by uh, by making multiple frames of the math that works progressively. So say if you had uh, Joan, Passion of Joan of Arc, for example, was 20 FPS. So um, that meant that uh, every was it, every fourth frame was was duplicated. Um, it's it's fairly invisible. Um, sometimes you notice a little bit of stuttering, but this is the only way that you can maintain the progressive uh, frame rate without introducing. Um, any kind of uh, interlacing or artifacting uh, through the motion. So hopefully that will change uh, as digital technology gets more and more sophisticated. It should be able to handle any frame rate you throw at it. But currently it's set up to an industry 24. As for 48, oh gosh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, it's a strange one because it's, you know, everything's going digital video anyway. So it's, it's almost like frame rate shouldn't even matter anymore. I don't know. All I know is that I've heard varying um, uh, uh, reactions to it. Some say the movement is too natural, too overly natural, which which sounds ridiculous, but I can understand what that means. People, regardless if they're watching video or film, are still still have an ingrained feeling that these images ought to be going through their their eyes at 2004 FPS. You know, there's a natural kind of flow. And whether they're watching video or film, I think that's still the case in that you, you expect things to move at a certain rate. And some of that rate is actually has some natural stutter to it. That 24 FPS is worked beautifully with people's uh, people's uh, uh, people's eyes. People love to people responded to that. I can see how 48 FPS might be actually upsetting without actually knowing what's what the source is of why it's upsetting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Well, James, I mean, thank you so much for, for your time and for it's been, it's been absolutely fascinating to learn a bit more about the restoration process and, and all the work that went into creating this fantastic Blu-ray of uh, zombie flesh eaters. So, um, yeah, sure. my Chris and myself, thank you very much. Oh no, thank my you. pleasure. I'm really glad that you asked. I mean, it's um, I think this is the first for me uh, a podcast. So uh, hopefully, <laughs> I don't sound too rough on the other end, but. Uh, Hopefully, with your editing magic, you can uh, take that on. That's uh, Phil's Phil's territory. He manages to make us sound almost half coherent, so I think we'll be all right. (laughs) As long as I only sound, as long as I'm half coherent, I'm happy. So, thanks for James, and thanks once again to Ian McCulloch. The Blu-ray for Zombie Flesh Eaters will be available from Monday the 3rd of December, and Chris's review is already up at avforums.com forward slash movies. The next podcast extra will be in February, but until then, there's the Movies Podcast on the 7th, there's the Games Podcast on the 14th, and the Home Cinema Podcast on the 21st. So, until February, I'm Stephen Withers, and thanks for listening. The AV Forum's Podcast Extra was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and used for promotional use only. The AV Forum's Podcast Extra is copyright M2N Limited.